Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Acts, chapter 16. The book of Acts, chapter 16, beginning in verse 11, moving through verse 15. And we will read this together from the board. So putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying in the city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside, where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer, and we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay and she prevailed upon us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, the truths that we have already sung this morning have already lifted my heart to know that no power of hell, no scheme of man could ever pluck me from your hand. To know that your amazing grace has made it so that I am yours and you are mine. Or to know that Death is dead and Christ is risen because it was finished upon the cross. There is nothing else to be done. And so, Lord, it makes us, do, it makes us want to sing to you because you are our redeemer. You have saved us from sin and death and hell. The grave no longer has any power or hold on us. Death is no longer our great opponent because you have conquered it. And Lord, now there is nothing that we fear in you. There is nothing that we fear from you. For we know there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who live not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, which you have given us, the great gift of your love toward us, the presence and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that lives within us and transforms us into the image of Jesus Christ. And Lord, that is, a, that is a truth, that is a message that our community and our world is in such desperate need of. We are, we are watching our nation unravel before our eyes. We are watching sin running rampant, seemingly unrestrained, and yet, Lord, we know that there is an answer and it is not in politics, it's not in education, it's not in, it's not in economics, it's not in uh, any kind of ism, but it is only in the cross of Jesus Christ. Because we come to you as we are, offering nothing but our sin and filth, and in return we gain all your righteousness. And Lord, you begin to change us into the image so that you will be glorified by your people. And so that others will see Christ in us and our deeds of love and our acts of faith. Lord, so that others will see Christ and glorify you 
And I pray that has been the goal and throughout these entire few weeks that we've been focusing specifically on evangelism and bringing that to a close today. Lord, we pray that even though our Who's Your One initiative is coming to an end today, I pray that, uh, that the focus on evangelism will continue that we will continue to look for one and then two and then another and then another and that we will see the power of the gospel going out to all the ends of the earth from Calvary Baptist Church so that all the world may know and that all the world may see the truth of the gospel that Christ has died for the world and that there is now redemption in him. So Father, help us to seek those that no one else wants. Help us to look for the rejected, for the poor, for the needy, for those that are hungry and thirsty and starving for affection. And let us show them the water that never runs dry. Let us show them the bread of life. Let us show them the riches of heaven. Let, them, let us show them Jesus Christ. Father, may you make us powerful in you, not that we may have bragging rights, not that we'll be the biggest church in town, but Lord, that we'll be the church that people know that there stands a hospital for sinners. There stands a place where I can find grace and love and acceptance. And there stands a place where I can find help and hope and everlasting life from the gospel. It is in your name we pray, amen. You may be seated, and I would invite you to go ahead and turn in your copy to the book of Acts chapter 16, your copy of the Word of God. And I would uh, just let you know that today is kind of the last day that we are talking about who's your one. We're going to be moving into uh, some other things pretty soon, and uh, I also, my, the end of my week is the time that I normally would write my PowerPoint and the end of my week kind of got away from me this week. So I don't really have a PowerPoint for you today. So I do apologize for that. Uh, but let me tell you a story about when I was a youth minister in Little Rock. Uh, I had been at this church probably no more than, than a few days whenever uh, one of our members passed away very tragically uh, before his time, and I won't give you the details on that, but uh, it was very tragic, very unexpected, and, and so we were making funeral, funeral arrangements, and because of the uh, intensity of the situation, the pastor asked me to be involved with him, and so I, I did, and, and we were talking to the funeral home director, and we were just talking about some of the different ones that he knew he was friends with, and, and one of the guys that he knew uh, was a friend of the funeral directors, a man who is very well known for not believing the gospel. But he was a good guy. In fact, uh, by all recollections, he was a, he was a great guy. And, and uh, the funeral home director would say, was talking about how he was a great husband. He was a great dad involved in, in their children's lives, not just leaving everything to the mother, et cetera, but, but every time he could, anytime he could do anything for his kids, he was there. Very generous man in the community. He often gave to causes and, and stuff like that and would even every now and then give to his wife's church to help out with different endeavors and stuff like that that he was impressed with. And, and the funeral home director was talking about all this and uh, he told us about one time he sat down with this man over dinner and he was just talking about different 
different things and such like that. And the funeral home director related to us that he said, you know, brother, you're a Christian. You just don't know it. And I thought, what a stupid thing to say. What, a, what an unbelievable statement. How in the world can someone be a Christian and not even know it? The whole point of Christianity is to know God as he is revealed in Christ Jesus for our redemption. And if you don't know that, then you're not a Christian. By definition, you're not a Christian. It's unbelievable that he, and, and what's worse is that he actually told this gentleman this by his own, by his own testimony. He said, oh, don't worry, you're, you're, you're a Christian, you just don't know it. I ran into other people who have, a, who have a, uh, a very misunderstanding of the doctrine of election and I would share the gospel with them and they would say, oh, don't worry about me, I'm fine. I'm predestined for heaven, it's all good. What? <laughs> that doesn't even make sense. That doesn't even make sense. You don't believe in Christ and yet you're okay because you're predestined to be in him for all eternity? That, that's, a, that's a horrible misunderstanding of that precious doctrine. And so... It's unbelievable that people would say things like this, but it is understandable. It is understandable because I think it reflects a common problem that we run into more than we care to admit. And, and during this Who's Your Ones initiative, some of us reflected and realized that, you know, the truth is, is that we really don't know that we know a whole lot of lost people. We don't know that we knew anyone who was lost. And, and several of you told me, I'm not sure that I even know a lost person in my circle. And, and it's easy to feel that way because it's natural, first of all. We know that it's natural for us to kind of group up with people who kind of believe the same way we do hold the values that we do and, and all that stuff. And, and not only that, but in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit who draws us toward other Christians. And, and so we're naturally drawn in a couple of different ways to those who are in Christ. We long for fellowship for those who are believers, but I really can't help but to ask the question if some of that may reflect something similar to that funeral home director and what he said. And I think in our area, especially in Batesville, Arkansas, in the middle of the Bible Belt, in the middle of, and some would even say the buckle of the Bible Belt, I think unless you go maybe poke around on Lions Campus a little bit, the truth of the matter is that for most of us, the kind of lost people we're going to run into is not hardened atheists. They are not cult members, although we do have a few of those around. They're not going to be members of another religion, even though we do have some of those around, but they're not that common. I think the most common lost person that you and I are going to run into is likely to be friends that we might refer to as a quote-unquote unsaved Christian. Unsaved Christian. Now that sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Sounds like a, a non-serving servant. You know, or, uh, or something like that. Um, what, is, what does that mean to be an unsaved Christian? Well, uh, you might refer to it as the unbelieving believer. Sometimes you might refer to it as the cultural Christian. Or you might, or you might refer to it as moralist or dead theologians. In the book of James, he refers to those who have dead faith. 
When I was a teen, we used to sing a song, I don't want to be, I don't want to be a casual Christian. I don't want to live, I don't want to live a lukewarm life. Slight misappropriation of, uh, of Revelation 3, but you all know what we're talking about here. Sounds like an oxymoron, but the truth of the matter is that we all know that this is a real significant problem, especially in our little corner of the United States. And before I go on, let me just say this, that all of us fall into this to a certain degree or another. We are all cultural Christians to a certain degree, are we not? I mean, the truth of the matter is, is that when we are, when, you know, our family that we are raised in, our culture that we are raised in profoundly impacts us in ways that we don't even recognize, in ways that we don't even see in our lives. We are, we are literally surrounded by our culture and it has infiltrated our minds and thoughts and the way we were raised and all of those things, all of that is reflected in us and it has a profound shaping effect that we don't recognize. And so before we attempt to take the speck out of another's eyes, I think we do need to have a moment to take the log out of our own eye and recognize where our faith may be driven more by values of our culture instead of our faith as informed by the scriptures. I think we all have that. Is, that. is that fair to say? I think we all do. One of my favorite pastors, you know, I've talked about him a lot, Dr. John MacArthur. He says, you know, I know there's places in my doctrine that I'm wrong, and if I knew where they were, I would fix them. <laughs> you know? And so we, we've all got that to some degree. We all know that. But because there is a problem with unbelieving belief in our culture, we must ensure that we are sharing the gospel with everyone. Beloved, the gospel is not just for lost people. It is also for saved as well. We grow in the gospel. The gospel is the gift that keeps on giving. The gospel nourishes us. The gospel strengthens us every single day. And it is not only for lost people. We need to be reminding ourselves of the gospel daily. And we need to be constantly reflecting of the wonderful grace of God in our lives. And so the reason I chose Acts 16 this morning, I'm going to be honest with you, I kind of struggled whether to go with John 6 or, or Acts 16, because I think you see a great example in both of those passages. Uh, I chose Acts 16 because John 6 has some, some other issues that it would be really easy to get sidetracked on. So, and I don't want to do that because I know we got lunch cooking in the fellowship hall. So, so, um, so anyway, um, but I think Acts 16 does give us a great example of how to not only reflect our lives and how areas where we may be more influenced by our culture rather than the New Testament. And it also gives us some principles to engage when we are talking with a friend and we discover that this is someone who their faith is driven more by their culture, their heritage, their family, whatever it may be, other than the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so how do we engage someone like this? And I think we see this in Acts chapter 16. And that first and foremost, we must acknowledge the issue. 
We must acknowledge the issue. And I won't read verses 11 through 14 again. Uh, uh, You get the point. It's basically a travel diary of how they're coming into Europe and they're coming into uh, Philippi. They kind of land in the city of Philippi that that is called a leading city in the district. This has kind of baffled some people, by the way, because Philippi was not the capital and it was not the biggest city. And so the question is, is why is it called, why does Luke refer to it as a leading city? And I think the reason why was because Philippi was one of those towns that even though it was small, its culture, its economy, and all of that kind of outgrew, had greater significance, kind of outmatched the city itself, the size of the city. Um, It had a booming economic center. It had booming cultural impact in the area, and its its influence outmatched its size. A lot like Batesville, by the way. You drive by the town of Batesville city sign, what does it say? Population is 10,200, I think it is. Something like that. According to the censuses, since I, since uh, According to the county, it says that um, it says that the town is really no more than ten thousand two hundred people. But when I first moved here, somebody told me that on any given day in Batesville, some thirty-two thousand people are driving into town every single day. And if you've ever tried to navigate during lunch hour, that's easy to believe. Easy to believe. And so, so our, our influence in the area, we kind of serve as the economic hub for all the counties that are really north of us and, and even west of us to some degree, you know, Cave City, Southside, even Pleasant Plains. Uh, we we kind of serve as the economic hub for all of these different areas. And that's a lot like Philippi was, just to a, a greater degree. Our commerce, our college, our community's influence outmatches our size. And, and, and so we are in a place that is very much like Philippi. We are in a place very much like what the apostles are walking into in this text. And when they arrived, because the city didn't have a synagogue, they knew it was the custom of the Jews when there was no synagogue to meet by the river to pray. And so they knew that there would be a prayer group by the river serving as a synagogue of sorts. This was the usual custom. Every Jew knew to look for this. And so he goes out to the river and he finds a group of women that are there attending the synagogue services. And one of them is named Lydia. You guys all know Lydia, don't you? In fact, uh, in churches, uh, they used to have things called the Lydia Circle that I grew up in, the Lydia Circle, the Lydia Class, those kinds of things. I want you to notice a couple things about her. Number one, it says here in verse 14, a lady named Lydia, city of Thyatira, Thyatira, excuse me, a seller of purple fabrics. Why would Luke bring that up? Because it shows that she was successful. It shows that she was successful. What do I mean by that? Because the color purple was a very difficult color to make during this time. And so it was usually reserved for the most wealthy uh, you may remember Christ was given a purple robe as a as kind of a mocking thing, and then when he was crucified, they, they didn't actually want to tear it up. They were actually gambling to see who could get it because then they could turn around and they could sell it for a good price. And so this means that if she was a seller of purple goods, that means that her clientele, you might say, was very wealthy. 
she had a very wealthy client base. She had a very successful business. And later on, it's going to be revealed that, uh, as we saw when we read through the text, that uh, apparently she has a house that's big enough to house the apostolic party. Uh, we know Peter, uh, we know Paul, excuse me, we know Paul and Silas was there. We also know just from the pronouns that are used that Luke is there. We know that... Um, we know from we know there were at least three, and there were probably others, and she had a home big enough to house them all. So she apparently was very successful at what she did, a very successful businesswoman uh, in the city of Philippi. One of the weird things about it, kind of not really weird, but unusual things about it, is that women were allowed to participate in the community in ways that they weren't allowed to everywhere else. And we see that reflected not only here, but we also see that reflected in the, in the letter to the Philippians that we read later on. And so she took advantage of that. She took full advantage of that. She was very successful in her business, a very hard worker, uh, very, the kind of person that we would look at as a role model, right? And she was also devout, also devout. She was successful, she was devout. It says she was a worshiper of God. What does that mean? In the, in the academic world, we refer to this as a God-fearer. That's kind of the technical name from it. A God-fearer was a Gentile who attended synagogue, who adapted the law, who adapted the Jewish way of life, but they did not fully convert to Judaism. And in the case of the men, that meant that you were not circumcised. But you attended synagogue, you did everything that a Jew did to some degree or another. So she's not fully converted to Judaism, but she is a churchgoer. So here we have a church-going, successful woman who is a model in the community. And this is one of the first people that Paul comes into contact with that we see in the text, inspired in Europe. You know, some lost people are determined to live in the dredges of society, aren't they? They're just determined. They're determined to do everything as difficult as possible. They love to wade and wallow in the sewers of culture. That's not Lydia. She's successful at her job. She has a good work ethic. She's a faithful churchgoer. Wonderful example to our children. The kind of person that we would all look at and say, be like Lydia, right? And it might be tempting to walk into a church and meet a Lydia and just assume that because of her success, because of her faithful participation in worship, that she must be a Christian. Isn't it tempting to assume that? I mean, let's be real. I mean, I've done it. You've done it. We just assume that because people hold a certain value or people hold a, a, a certain kind of mentality or they're successful or whatever it is, we just assume that, ah, they must be Christian. This is why it's so important to acknowledge the real issue. Acknowledge the real issue. What is the gospel? Who is the gospel for Jesus ran into a similar situation in John chapter six. I told you I kind of struggled with which one to go with. Crowd of at least 5,000 men and likely women and children as well. He had fed them miraculously in the desert. The next day they find him. They they're, they're seeking for Jesus, seeker sensitive church. Here you are. They are seeking for Jesus. They run to the other side of the sea and say, Jesus, we were looking for you. Where were you? 
Jesus says in John 6, 26, he answered them, truly I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus knows the only reason they're following him is to gain something from him, gain something they want. And as soon as they realize that's not gonna happen, what do they do? John chapter six, verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? I want you to understand, did you hear what I just said? John doesn't refer to them as a crowd. He actually calls them disciples. And yet when the teaching gets too hard, what do they do? They bail. They leave. They had a kind of belief. They had a kind of trust. They had a kind of understanding of the gospel, but that faith was born out of the flesh and it did not even last till the end of John chapter six. It was crowded out by the thorns of worldly values. It was choked out. It withered and died because they thought they could gain something for themselves from Jesus. And that's why they followed him. And if you want a definition of a cultural Christian, I think that's what it is. That someone who follows Christ, not because he is the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through him, but they follow Christ because he is the best thing that they have found so far. And so there was a time in our country when going to church gained you social capital in the community. There was a time in our culture when, when going to church was just kind of the expected thing. And if you wanted to be accepted in the culture, in the, in, the, in, the, in the sociability of the community, then going to church is just what you did. And we're seeing that go away a little more slowly in some places, but we are seeing that go away. And as that social capital is starting to go away, we're also starting to see the church attendance is shrieking all across the nation, even, yes, here in the Bible Belt. That as that social capital is disappearing, so are many, quote unquote, disciples. What's happening? Everybody today is concerned about the rise of the nuns and about how people are affiliating with none, no religion in the surveys. Where are all these coming from? Beloved, they've always been there. It's just more socially acceptable today to admit that than it has been in the past. They've always been there. Where were they? They were in our pews every Sunday, gaining whatever it was they thought and so, beloved, let's, let's examine ourselves for a moment here. That when we are, let me ask you a question, when you are confronted with a gospel truth, a biblical truth that challenges our cultural ideas, are we willing to change our ideas to be more faithful to the word? Or are we going to change the word or ignore the word in order that we can keep our culture? Which one is it? Because if it's the second, then you may just be a cultural Christian. You may just be that. Beloved, have you come to Christ so that he can make much of you? Or have you come to Christ so that by his grace you may make much of him? Why have you come to Christ? Is it so that he can make much of you? Or so that by his grace you can make much of him? 
Which one? And once we acknowledge there's a problem, we must go back to the basic, the basic truths of our faith. We must to not only acknowledge the problem, but we must adhere to the root of our faith. Look what happens in, in, uh, in, chapter, 14, in chapter 16, verse 14. It says here, a seller of purple fabric. She was a worshiper of God and she was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. I want you to notice this, a couple things. Number one, that it was the Lord that opened her heart. Do you see that? It was the Lord that opened our heart. Luke says that the Lord opened our heart to pay attention to what Paul is saying. And I wish I could show you this because in the original language, the way it's structured and the way that it's arranged, the way Luke writes this, he does it in a very artistic way that points to this phrase, that the Lord opened her heart as the emphatic phrase of the entire, of the entire thing that we're seeing here, the entire story that we find. It's like the climax. It's like like the most important element. He says, we did this, we did this, we did this, and we taught, and she listened. But the Lord opened her heart. It's emphatic. It is something that he wants us to, he wants to grab our attention. The Lord, it was the greatest miracle, is when God takes a person who is spiritually dead and raises them to everlasting life by faith in Jesus Christ. That is the greatest miracle. And beloved, it is a miracle. It is not an act of the flesh. Jesus says in John chapter six that that which is born, that the flesh profits you nothing. It is the spirit that gives life. He tells Nicodemus, one of, probably one of the most quintessential cultural believer that you can imagine. And he tells him that which is born of flesh is flesh. Only that which is born of spirit is spirit. If you are gonna be born again, you must be born of the spirit. The Lord must open your heart regardless of your background, regardless of how you were raised, regardless of how quote unquote good you are, if you would be saved, beloved, it must be a work of God, not your work. It must be God. He opens their heart and she responds in saving faith. She responds in saving faith. Of course, the text does not come right out and say this. Now it does in the NASB, but some of your other translations say that she pays attention or, or she listens or something like that. But her heart was open to pay attention to what Paul was saying. And I want you to notice in verse 15, she was baptized. She was baptized, the declaration of her faith. Now the baptism didn't save her, but the baptism does show that she was saved. The baptism is the public declaration. It is the public proclamation that I am now in Jesus Christ. Understand, according in the New Testament, if you're refusing to be baptized, you're refusing to admit that you are a Christian. And so she was baptized. And not only this, her household as well who were likely with her at the prayer meeting, I imagine that they had such an admiration, such a respect for their mother, their wife, perhaps their daughter, that when they saw the gospel response in her life, God used her testimony to reveal their need for the gospel as well. I mean, imagine how much you love your mother. Imagine how much you respect your mother. How much, I mean, she's a hard worker. She provides for the family. She does all of this stuff. And yet now she hears the gospel and she understands I need the gospel. 
Can you imagine what her household said? That if Lydia needs the gospel, then how much more must I? By the way, parents, that's why you need to be the chief repenters in your home. You need to be the first ones to ask for forgiveness. You need to be the first ones to admit that you're wrong because your kids need to see that if you need the gospel, then they do also. Lest we run afoul of raising cultural Christians in our home, raising Pharisees in our home. God forbid that we would do that, amen? We need to make sure that we are not enabling cultural Christianity in our homes and in our church. Beloved, this is the root of salvation. The supernatural birth takes place. Even though she had been attending synagogue, even though she had attended worship, she had attended the prayers, attended all the rituals, probably led out in many of them. She had obeyed the law as much as she could, yet none of that saved her. None of it did. Salvation is a supernatural act of God in which he opened her heart to hear the gospel and she responded by faith alone. It's the greatest miracle that can happen in your lives. People today are looking for miracles, looking for signs and wonders. Beloved, the only miracle you need is for God to raise you from the dead. That's the only miracle you need. In fact, I was so impressed with the missionary last week because he was talking about how um, he, uh, and, and I don't know, I can't remember the whole story. Maybe some of you who were there at Stefan's house, you may recall and help me out, but I think it was he that was uh, one of the, one of this guy who was a devout Muslim came up with his son. His son was having some kind of hearing problem. And, and so he prayed in Jesus's name for the son to be healed. And by his testimony, the son was healed. And he says, you know, and he told the father, he says, I want you to know now, um, I wasn't there, but, but listen, what impressed me by what he said was that he told the father, I want you to know that your son was healed because I prayed in, in Jesus' name and I would like for you to understand who Jesus is. And the Muslim man says, nah, and he walks off. Beloved, you don't need the miracle of your, of your ears being, being healed physically. You need the miracle of your ears being healed spiritually so that you will hear. What does Jesus say? He who has ears to hear, eyes to see, that's what you need. You need the Holy Spirit to open your ears, open your eyes, and give you supernatural birth that you would respond to the gospel by faith alone. That's what happened to Lydia. And that's what needs to happen to each and every one of us and each and every one of our friends. So we must be sure that in our preaching the gospel, what's the application here? That in our preaching and sharing the gospel that we are not making assumptions about someone's faith when, because we happen to like their lifestyle. We must be sure that just because we like the way someone lives, because we admire their work ethic, because we admire, because they have good grades in school, we must not make assumptions about their faith just because we happen to like the way they live. 
We need to make sure that they know the gospel. And, and here's how we can do this. And, and, and this can happen. And, and you've heard me share this before in terms of parenting, in terms of children's ministry, where, where you've got a kid over here who is soft-hearted and mendable and moldable and pleasing and always wants to do what mommy and daddy says and always wants to be, always wants to be um, pleasing to his parents. And then you got a child over here who's just a knucklehead. And it's just determined to do everything the most difficult way possible and just rebels against your authority. And if you told them the sky was blue, they would argue with you. If they took something from the cookie jar and you showed them a video of them doing it, they would still say, that's not me. I don't know who that is, right? And we all know that there are these two kinds of kids, right? But the danger we run into as parents and the danger we run into as children's workers to think that this child over here is somehow in less need of God's grace of this child over here. How we cannot make that mistake. We cannot make that mistake. Remember, there were two men who went to pray. Lord, I thank thee that I am not like other men. I fast twice a week. I give alms to the poor. I ha 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 ha. The other man says, wouldn't even look to heaven. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Let me ask you a question. Which one of those two men needed the gospel? Both of them. Which one got it? The one who begged for mercy. The one who recognized his sin. Beloved, we must not perpetuate cultural Christianity in our church we must not perpetuate cultural Christianity in our homes with our children, God forbid. We must adhere to the root of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And how do we make sure we do that? We've got to acknowledge the issue. We've got to adhere to the root, but we also need to examine our fruit. Examine our fruit. Look at verse 15. I'm not going to spend, I know you're hungry. It says here, and when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, if you have judged me to be faithful, come into my house and stay. She prevailed upon us. <laughs> if you judge me to be worthy, I wonder if this is the first time in her life she's ever thought that she needed to ask that question. I wonder if this is the first time that she had to look at someone and say, listen, if you think I'm worthy, would you please Give me the privilege of hosting you in my home. I imagine people all over town wanted to see her home. She probably had the nicest home on the block. There was a, there was a family in Little Rock that used to do like uh, Christmas lights and it was the Osborne family and everybody wanted to see the Osborne family. And, and I always wondered, I wonder what the inside of the Osborne family's house looks like. That's Lydia's house. And I bet that family, I think their name was Osborne, I can't remember. But I, I, I think that, I wonder if that family ever had to beg someone to come see the inside of their house. I really wonder if they had to. My guess is probably not. In fact, they probably had to keep people out. There's a huge gate to keep people out. But Lydia, upon hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, understands, she looks at Paul and says, if you think that I'm worthy, would you please come stay with me? And she prevailed upon them. In other words, she had to do a little convincing. She's probably never had to do this in her life. What changed? The gospel. 
She saw her righteousness in light of the righteousness of Christ. She came to understand that she was a sinner. And she knew that her only claim to God and goodness was the very righteousness of Christ. That's what changed. How can we have anything other than humility when we compare ourselves to Christ? Beloved, churchianity will make you feel really good about yourself. Christianity will send you to your knees. It will send you to humility. How can we have anything other than humility when we see ourselves in light of Christ? Listen, beloved, I, I may see your sinful patterns. I may see things that you're doing wrong. And as your pastor, I love you enough that if I see that it's, really, it's something that's really impacting your spiritual growth, I may come and talk to you about it. That's what I'm supposed to do. Please don't get mad at me. Beloved, I may see your sins, but I, I am intimately aware of what's going on in my heart. I'm not aware of that for you. I'm aware of that for me. I can't judge others. I can't look at you and say you're worse than me when I know what's going on in my heart. All I can do is raise my hands and plead to God for mercy and I find that there is more than enough for me. That's all I can do. I don't understand your particular sin struggle, but I understand the struggle with sin all too well. I am intimately familiar with it. I was counseling someone who was an alcoholic one time and he says, Randy, you just don't know what it's like. And I told him, I may not understand your particular struggle, but I understand the struggle with sin all too well. I'm just like you. I'm worse than you. And so how can we have anything other than humility and how can we have anything other than love when we come to the gospel? A sacrificial love. She opens up her home, gives them everything they need so that they may be free to spread the gospel even more. And we see the same reaction with the Philippian jailer later on in verse 16. The Philippian jailer, when he comes to know Christ as Savior, so changed by the gospel that he takes Paul and Silas to his home. He cleans up and heals the very wounds that earlier that day he gave them. That is the fruit of the gospel. That's what the gospel does. Are we growing in humility? Are we growing in love for one another, for the lost? Are we growing in a deeper love of Christ? In our lives, we need to examine our fruit. You know, today it's often said that 70% of Americans are Christians. I know you don't believe that, right? Along with that, it's often quoted, according to studies, that 40% of Americans are born again, and we hear that on the radio, Christian radio, all the time, especially around election season. That's when they really start to throw out those numbers. It's often quoted from Gallup polls and Pew Research Center, et cetera, but several years ago, four university researchers did this independently, by the way. None of them had any idea what the others were doing. And they tightened up the definition of born again. They tightened it up to where it was defining it by beliefs, by morals, not just I go to church every now and then. 
They tightened it up to what it really means biblically to be born again. And even though they all worked independently, and even though none of them had any idea of what the others were doing, all four of them came to very similar results. Beloved evangelical Christians in America who are truly born again account for less than 10% of our population. At best, at worst, it's 7%. At best, it's 8.9% of Americans. That means that 10 people in the culture who who are, that, that we see in Walmart every day, if this is correct, and I believe it is, that when we tighten up the definition of born again to say that this is what the Bible says what it means to be born again, that means that out of every 10 people you see in the community, less than one of them is an actual born again believer in Jesus Christ. Now, it might be a little better here because we have some great churches in town. But we've also got some not-so-great churches in town. Let's just be real. And so we cannot make the mistake of assuming someone's faith based on simply the fact that we like their lifestyle. We must be faithful to the gospel lest we perpetuate the cultural Christianity. Amen? Amen. Maybe you're here this morning and maybe you're, you don't know the difference. Maybe you say, I don't know. Is, is my faith more defined by a faith in Jesus Christ or is it more defined by my American values, my family values, whatever it may be? Maybe, maybe you're a little confused about that. I, I would love to talk to you. I would love to have that conversation with you. And beloved, we can, we can go to the scriptures and we can show you what Christ says about being born again what it means. Maybe, maybe you are having your heart open this morning for the first time and you're understanding the gospel is not something you're, you're born into. It's not a heritage that you inherit. It is a faith that you have in Jesus Christ alone. Next week is October 31st. Halloween for most of us, but some of us know, we also know that's Reformation Day. And the five great solas that they, that they screamed, that they died for, that they lived for, to pass on. Beloved, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, on the authority of scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. And if that's not your salvation, and I would love to talk to you this morning. If you're believing in anything other than Christ alone, then let's have that talk, even while we're eating. I can eat and talk at the same time, even while we're eating. How many of you guys are hungry? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these wonderful truths. We thank you for the fact that you have been so good to us. And even when you confront our hearts, you do it in love, you do it in compassion. Lord, I know that I have not done justice to anything I've said this morning. There's so much more that could be said and there's so many more eloquent ways that it could be said. But Father, I pray your spirit and your power is going forth and and speaking to us this morning and, and changing us into the image of Jesus Christ even more. And whatever that means for us individually, I pray that that is what's being done. 
If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Savior, I would love to talk to you as we stand. I wanna ask you to keep your head bowed for just a few moments as the musicians play. And if you are unsure of your place in Jesus Christ, if you're unsure of your standing in grace, I wanna talk to you. There's others who can talk to you. Brother Roy, Brother Art, Brother John, uh, Brother Aaron, Bobby, Vanita, Melinda, so many more who would love to talk to you and would, and would love to share the gospel with you. We will, we will go hungry and miss lunch if that means that you could have the bread of life. So will you come this morning and will you know Christ and be known by him? I'll just give you a few moments to respond.